Hi, I'm Danny Belvin. And I'm Demika Brown. And we are biracial unicorns. And I blame school totally for me feeling like I still need permission to go to the bathroom. Mm, it was like a rude awakening starting college. Like, it shouldn't have been <laughs> yeah. a rude awakening. But I'm just like, wait, you could just, like, leave? Yeah, <laughs> just- that is so, and then just the look of, like, just utter overness of professors of just, like, yes, just, like, you could have this probably conversation all the time of the realization from their students, but... It's a big deal just to get up and go. Yeah. I don't know. It's, I mean, I guess it depends, like, the kind of school you went to. I There was one class, I think in elementary school, where we pretty much just had free reign to go to the bathroom mm. whenever we wanted. Anarchists. Yeah. The only rule was it could only be one girl and one boy gone at a time. So it was like, there was like the pass was up next to the door. And so you could mm. look, if no one was gone, you could take the pass, you could like flip your little card to say where you're going and and just go. But oh. I don't know, that class was great for a variety of reasons. He gave us a lot of autonomy <laughs> in that class. Uh, I like it. That's a look at all that free will to these children. Yeah. Uh, but it, there is a thing. I think it teaches us once again of just like this conformity of just like you kind of don't listen to yourself. I uh, probably too much for a podcast totally peed myself in the third grade because <laughs> I couldn't get the teacher's attention to Aww. go pee i was just like she's like in a minute in a minute we were learning cursive of all things <laughs> she doesn't want me to miss how to make the cursive g that i still use to this day but it was like was one, like you said like that awakening of just like your knees versus like what's going on in the class that kind of dynamic and so i say it in jest but it, it is a really interesting phenomenon when you get to college and when you get to these freer areas where you're just like you just go yeah my day job is at a Montessori school, so I feel like the kids have a lot more autonomy than, like, in a public school. I'll just see, like, kids, like, out and about on campus. <laughs> this is, like, I mean, pre-COVID, it's been a while since I've been on campus. But, yeah, kids are just, like, doing their thing, going and checking out other classrooms. I think that's great. I mean, I know we should know where children are at all times. We can't lose them. But my, my daughter, when she said in school that she would definitely, like, peek in, do you know what they were doing? And she's, I guess she peeked and saw a teacher open up a soda in class to have a drink and it exploded. And it's wow. not what it was supposed to happen. So she's like, oh, I just got, it just caught me off guard. I thought that was the funniest thing. But, uh, school I days. Mean, yeah, and they're back. And whether you are just starting back or your days are numbered, the 2021 to 2022, that's crazy to say. The school year is here. And there's already been enough question within the world and the media. There's mask or no mask, in-person, hybrid, remote, mandatory vaccinations for kids 12 or older or not. And there's already so much before kids even crest the door. But now, there's a buzzword theory going around of what's going to be in the actual curriculum and that's what's not going to be in the curriculum yeah Yeah. yes you get it you get it so uh in case you've been under a rock today we are talking about critical race theory yes that critical race theory it's hot in the media has Girl. been for a couple of months now i think mm-hmm. maybe even a little longer but it's in many ways like a new scapegoat for things yeah it's also seen as this new i don't know like golden standard for some people to flex their wokeness yeah i got i 
got feelings a little bit. How about you? Uh-huh. You know, I, I'm not going to lie. In trying to do this, is making sure of just what is factual, what is true. And I've been really working on separating the the immense feelings I have towards this. So I've got feelings. We'll hopefully process it. Well, we're going to do it in a very unicorn way by defining something by what it is not. Then we're going to go back to what it is and how that's impacting unicorns, POCs, and our our uh, conspirators, our co-conspirators here. So, And I'm sure you as an educator, I would love to hear just this fear, this fear of conversation going on and how that impacts educators and mm-hmm. the like. So I'd love to love to kind of just glean from your like first impressions, but I don't know. How would you, how would you begin to define what CRT critical race theory isn't? Oh, what it isn't. <sighs> I think there are some misconceptions going around for sure about what mm-hmm. it is and that that are entirely wrong. So I think a big one is it isn't vilifying white people. Mm-hmm. Whenever you talk about racism in general, like all of a sudden there is a certain contingent of people who assume you are being anti-white or reverse racist just by talking about racism. So yeah. just by talking about critical race theory, I think there's a lot of that same knee-jerk reaction against it that it's like anti-white or, you know, anti-white people or reverse racist and it's not that. Mm-hmm. I think there's this ideal that it categorizes people into the oppressed and the oppressor. Mm-hmm. That that's that's a big one sitting in there. That it's categorizing things that it can be. Actually, was it a Senator Cruz actually was quoted in saying it's just as racist as the Klansmen. <laughs> so I'm I'm gonna assure you that's not it. That's what's also really terrifying about this critical race theory being in the news so much is the intensity and the amount of misinformation I feel is so overt. It's it's intense. It it really really is. It's been uh, compared to Marxism. Mm. Like didn't I I must have missed that boat <laughs> when talking about critical race theory. Yeah, I think there is also this conception that critical race theory is about like indoctrination of mm. of the children into something that many Republican lawmakers, just to call them who they are, mm-hmm. seem to think like discussing structural issues surrounding the racist history and the continued racist behavior in America. They think somehow talking about that is, I don't know, indoctrinating the youth into hating white people or, like you said, becoming Marxist or, like, all these, mm-hmm. like, very broad, like, in my mm-hmm. mind, reaching statements when really critical race theory is is very much, like, what it sounds like if you break down the words. Oh, my goodness, yes. It's just a different theory, a different way of viewing the lens of history and today, specifically through the impact of race. Something important to recognize about it is it is both both structural and individual, but it's like more of a, a view, a look at the structure. Though, you know, you might have an individual relationship with somebody of a different race and you might say, oh, well, like I am not racist in my behavior because of this 
like individual relationship. That's not that's not what critical race theory is talking about. Critical race theory is talking about these large overarching mentalities and things that have been kind of laid down in the framework, in the foundation, Mm. and continue to be there, regardless of like, where you are as an individual on this wall, like it doesn't change the fact that there is a foundation that is based on racist mentality and racist attitudes. And it's kind of the whole the whole structure of what we're working with, regardless of your individual experiences. Exactly. And I, I love that word. I just want to like pressure like the, exactly like that framework. And, and that's what it is. And when you think about a frame, if you think something very visual, it's something to kind of look through. There's there's different sides of that of what we're looking into. And that's what they're all asking for people to do, which I, I mean, to to actually kind of even start at the beginning, it was it's technically a law class. It's like in higher academia where this is kind of fundamentally comes from as far as what they're what they're using. And so when people are hearing it, do we have a certain written criteria curriculum for K through twelve for critical race theory? Like that's you know they take it in between you know sociology, history, and algebra. I don't know. I don't. I don't know where people are getting from that it's in between homeroom and PE. They stop by critical race theory. Yeah, people somehow think it's like some sort of like woke philosophy class. And it, yeah. like, it isn't. That's yeah. not how it exists. It's just something that's like underlying in everything. And and that's the thing too. So as we're going for it in the media and people are calling a ban and a halt and a stop to this, I mean, even that is incredibly murky. Where where do you stop? It's so funny. I was watching an interview with teachers been like, well, I didn't think we were teaching it technically before. So how do we stop teaching it now? Yeah, exactly. It's not being taught. And there are like particular instances where things that relate to critical race theory are mm-hmm. like brought into the classroom depending on the teacher. But it's definitely not like it's not something that's in like standards or benchmarks as far mm-hmm. as I know, at least not here in New Mexico, but I don't think anywhere in the U.S. it's included in any sort of standards or benchmarks. So it's not like a subject or an area that is being measured. But rather, I think it might be a little bit more prevalent in the classrooms than it ever has been because there are more people outwardly talking about these issues. Mm, Exactly. I I think another misconception is that people think this is a knee-jerk reaction towards Black Lives Matter. But but once again, this has been around since the 70s, 80s. It's been around for a while. First of all, once again, the world of higher academia, specifically for law, kids are not dumb. I think we've said that in in on the podcast a few times. Kids are not dumb. And they are very, even as young as kindergarten, they're wondering what's going on in the world. They're like sponges. You can try to protect them as much as you can, but they are not unaware of the issues going on in the world. So when we're talking about critical race theory of where some of this kind of attitude and misconception about it started was them kind of teaching what was going on and what racism is and how that's impacting them today at a very young, understandable, digestible measurement. And I think parents, uh, white conservative parents, had this knee-jerk reaction of saying, like you were talking about, the the wokeness of trying to indoctrinate their children. And it just snowballed. And I think it was just kind of taken into it. They're saying the war on critical race theory. You know, they, it's taken the form of a boogeyman. It's climbing in your windows. It's snatching your kids up. <laughs> like, 
Yeah. Hide your kids, hide your wife. It's taken on, what was it, someone? Oh, daggone it. I think I had it written down. They said that in a three and a half month, oh, Liz Power said that an article uh, as of June 21st, Fox News had mentioned critical race theory 1300 times. Wow. Like, just... <laughs> Just just constantly just hammering it. It's becoming this catch-all for all things involving social justice, calling out defunding the police. I think they're all conjuncting it into critical race theory. And it, it that's, once again, it's exactly like Danny said. Think about the words. We're asking and challenging kids to think critically about what's going on in the world, what's happened in the past, what's happening today, and how that impacts their future and, I, and how it impacts the world around them. Something that I've heard heard from some opponents of critical race theory is, well, kids don't know race. Kids don't (laughs) see race until you're talking about it. You're like wanting to bring it up. You're teaching them this. You're teaching them hate. And this is like such a strange, and we've talked about this before, privileged point of view. Exactly. Because you're talking about white kids not seeing not seeing race but it's really like critical race theory talks about how it's like it's underlying right so like Mm -hmm. they're still going to be behaviors they're still going to see the world around them and like you were saying kids aren't dumb they pick up on things and just when i was talking about this with my in-laws they they asked like when i knew that i was you know different (laughs) um and i was like uh my whole life Uh, (laughs) right away. I remember being five years old in kindergarten and being told to go back to China. So, (laughs) you know, like I think I think a lot of kids are aware of race from a young age. I remember learning about slavery in school um, when I was, I don't know, maybe second grade, first or Mm -hmm. second grade was the first time it was brought up. And I just like lost (laughs) it. Yeah. Like I couldn't, I couldn't handle it because I was like, you know, I was already aware of race and I was already aware of people being different. And all I could think at that moment was like my friend Sarah, who was black, like, like, why? Like, she's, yeah. you know, like, why? I don't understand how she's different. Like, I see her physical difference, but like, I don't, we're just kids. And so I don't think critical race theory is teaching kids that they're not just kids, but I think it is shining a light on the way people are treated differently. Exactly. And I think to that point, I think that's so great that kids are being made aware. And then what do you do with it? That is a lot. I've been watching things like Roots since I was very, very young. I'm incredibly young and realizing how that impacted me. And, you know, like being in a mixed family, the duplicity and the the emotional tear that creates within you. I remember being five and asking, you know, did I know I was adopted? Because, you know, because my white mom was picking me up and boom, all of a sudden at five years old from Uh. another child, I knew I was different from, you know, that that was such an implication and you cannot undo that. And I wish I would have had someone in that kind of authority to walk everyone through that. Because I'm not yeah. mad at that kid. You know, that's it's part right. of kids' nature. We teach them the difference between shapes and colors. That's why we get baby Einstein. Like we we thrive on that, but yet we don't think kids are gonna pick that up in other children. And then I'm I think specifically even for I'm thinking high school age kids, why would we not want to cultivate a curriculum when we're asking them to think critically? Not only being able to think more for themselves, being able to connect all their subjects together in their totality, but also making them more empathetic human beings. Like there's just Mm. so much fear in that. And 
you know, there was a, another interview I was watching saying, you know, that's a parent's job. And I'm like, well, I'm thinking about other things like sex and gender that was also supposed to be labeled as parents' jobs and we're not doing so great at that either. <laughs> like, it's, you know, it, what? Oh, I, I guess in my mind, if we were going to talk about it, we would have been talking about it. But it's very yeah. evident that we are not. Yeah. Without it, we're teaching we're teaching silence and we're not mm-hmm. equipping people because <laughs> children are people. We're not mm-hmm. equipping people with the necessary skills to think critically and talk about um, systemic problems, which I mean, like if school can't do that, yeah. what is supposed to do that? Like, isn't that a big purpose of school? It's crazy. I mean, people are actually asking. There was one, uh, I know in Florida has been a really big, uh, Florida and Texas have been a really big voice against banning critical race theory, which once again, was not a curriculum and saying that we need to be able to give equal points of both sides of history. And it was brought up. So we're supposed to teach civil rights and their point of view alongside the KKK's point of view and not paint either one the victim or the villain. And I'm just wondering how... In saying these things, what do you mean by that? What what would be the point of that? There is this lack of wanting to recognize, you know, it's uh, interrupting that thought for this one. There's this anti-patriotic rhetoric that kind of goes with critical race theory. And I can't understand what's more loving your country than recognizing how it was founded and, and all its ugliness and want to do better. You know, it was, it's it's loving someone and knowing all their faults, knowing their past and knowing that, you know what, together we can, we cannot repeat those mistakes. And with understanding and working towards that, you can be better and I can be better. Yeah. I don't understand. Why wouldn't we want to paint the KKK or Nazis as as bad yes. guys anyway. Like I'm not saying that that's what critical race theory is doing, yeah. but but like <laughs> in my my own personal estimation, like they are they are bad yes. guys. Like and yes, I'm sure there are people who guess complexities that are there. But critical race theories is exactly wanting to talk about the complexities that are there. Like and and I don't. I don't I don't want to live in a world where it's like no we want to see things from the KKK's perspective. Yeah. They aren't right or wrong. Like no. No, they're wrong. <laughs> like, yep. <laughs> it's crazy. Well that that's actually that's that's part of it. You know, there are these these structures that are there in order to like I said to give framework of what's going on. And there is Kimberly Crenshaw who's total badass. They're saying that she is credited with kind of coining the the phrase and movement of critical race theory. One of the many people she's written books, she spoke about it. She also spoke about intersectionality total bomb. She has this quote that she did an interview with CNN, and I think it just says it perfectly. She says, critical race theory just says, let's pay attention to what happened in this country and how what has happened in this country is continuing to create difficult outcomes. So we can become the country that we say we are. So critical race theory is not anti-patriotic. In fact, it is more patriotic than those who are opposed to it because we believe in the 13th and the 14th and the 15th Amendment. We believe in the promises of equality and we know we can't get there if we can't confront and talk honestly about inequality. I can't say any better than that. It's the idea that racism and racist systems did not originate with the KKK, right? Like, if it were mm-hmm. as simple as, like, that is what racism in this country is, like, 
how easy it would be oh. to overcome racism, right? But but so part of what critical race theory talks about is it's these ideas are very decentralized. Mm-hmm. So if it's like everywhere, bits and pieces, it's examining that as a whole rather than just compartmentalizing and saying, you know, like, if we discuss and deal with the KKK, we have solved racism. Like, mm-hmm. you know. Exactly. And th- these are just kind of like some of the broad core like pillars or tenets of uh, critical race theory, just to give people who are still a little mishugana about what's going on. And they kind of focus on that race is a social construct. There's nothing biologically different between us, like the races, which is that scientific fact. <laughs> so let's not fight science, people. The centralization of race, of talking about, it's not like Danny just mentioned that it's not just the KKK, it's not just a couple of bad apples, that it's these bigger systems that work, that have come to some of the outcomes we live and have been the basis of stereotypes and systematic and systemic racism. It's a commitment to social justice, which this is something that we're urging people to come alongside us with and being very open about. And this is is not just for for race, like we're saying uh, for for women, for people with different sexual orientation. We're we're working towards that equality. This is something I thought that was very interesting that supports that critical race theory is once again a, a framework, and that is it uses things like uh, parables, narrative, family history, storytelling to kind of explain. It's not just in 1974, you know, there is housing issues and they were denied. Like that's history, but when we're talking about thinking critically, we need to use constant examples and how that's changing with the time. It's a back and forth. It's a conversation. And it's also talking about this interdisciplinary kind of perspective. And what what they want is that talking about this, not necessarily like, oh, it's a liberal thing. It's a, it's a conservative thing. But it's saying that there's no right side wrongs. There's no one answer. There's no one path. They're not saying, bam, here's the band-aid. This is how we fix it. This is who's going to be right in the end. Once again, it is talking about on multiple fronts for true liberation, for true equality, for true freedom. It needs to kind of be this inner working, ongoing answer and movement. It's a verb, not a noun. So when we're talking about this and there's this fear of, like I said, indoctrinating, finger pointing, naming and shaming white people, there's this protective bubble I feel that we're trying to put around our our white children (laughs) in, in schools instead of thinking like how we can make them better prepared human beings for the world that we're actually living in. Because children of color have already had this bubble popped and they're very much living in this reality. I really struggle (laughs) <laughs> with with these groups, especially if there's someone who's like a professing believer, there's a lot of conservative, a lot of religious groups that are making this like the, the new Antichrist and, and going forward to it. And I am struggling, Danny. I'm struggling. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's like, um, I think there's something worth mentioning too, that there is this fear that by using this framework, It's just going to create conflict in the Mm -hmm. classroom. But I think there is already that fear. Mm. In my opinion, 
what I've seen <laughs> over over my lifetime is a, a very big change in the way that educators are, are treated within um, mm. society. So I think there is already a certain level of, especially for public school educators, of fear in having to like talk about things in a particular way. There are educators who just like push back against it. I'm not saying that's true everywhere, but I think particularly when it comes to things like race or racism or even gender like you said there there is a certain amount of treading lightly that has to happen and i think by like naming what it is and saying you know this is the framework we're talking about we're really sharpening students critical thinking skills and we are bringing in multiple perspectives we are looking at historical events both broad social and individual and and show how that past has impacted the present day once you put in that framework i think there there is a certain amount of freedom that is allowed to happen within the classroom mm. because it doesn't become this fear of offending somebody which i think exactly. is a is a huge problem we have as a society mm. when having open, honest dialogue. It's hard because there's that fear of offending people. And it seems like in many ways, like that offending people is like one of the worst things you could do. Like mm. we live in a world where that's like worse than, you know, oh, black yeah. people being killed by the police. Like it's worse oh. that you want to talk about it and offend people. Like mm. what, that is not the world that I want to live in. Exactly. Exactly. And and that's the, once again, I get that there's a protection that is over and privileged to few. And, and, and that's what I'm seeing is like, once again, there's this rushing for protection. I don't think it's by accident. I think they're ramping up for, for midterm elections. Yeah, they for need sure. to have a buzzword. They need to have, a, you know, the catalyst. They need to have that scapegoat, which is what I'm kind of seeing that it's being used as the lamb to slaughter for these particular issues to be able to have ownership. If we chant Black Lives Matter, others can chant, you know, no critical race theory. You know, I think we talked about people needing to to feel oppressed, needing to feel this way in order to group together and feel validated. And it's really terrifying. And I just, I have so much admiration for teachers. And if I I'll always, I always have, I think you all are a different kind of beautiful unicorn out there, but specifically during this time period, I, it blows my mind that after people are basically begging for schools to open, now we want to dictate First, we want them to come back and teach during a global pandemic. <laughs> we want them, then we realize how much they were all thanks to all kids. They're paying for, you know, school supplies out of pocket. A lot of teachers have to have like two and three jobs. And now we want to dictate what they can and cannot teach even further to enough to where people are asking for teachers' heads on spears if they talk about racism in an open, honest forum. It is all I can see is, and I, I guess maybe that's part of a, a wrap up as well. My fear is there's going to be a teacher shortage because who would honestly take this kind of ongoing abuse? <laughs> there's already a teacher shortage. We live Girl, in a constant state of teacher shortage because as a society, we do not, when we're talking about putting our money where our mouth is, like we do mm. not actually value education to the extent that I believe that we should. And this is a little just moment on my soapbox, but like I don't Girl, think get on it. <laughs> I don't think educators get paid what they deserved. And if mm. if we 
paid teachers more, if we made teaching a more prestigious occupation the way that I believe it should be, we would also attract people, uh, like a, a broader range of people. There are, I know plenty of people who are or were educators who have left the profession for a variety of reasons, but like pay is definitely one of them. Why would you work this job that is incredibly stressful, like all consuming? You would get paid more like working in food service, which is a a job that at least while it's difficult in a different way, is a job that at least ends when you leave. (laughs) And yeah, girl, get it, say it. And I... I have so much fear of where education is going to go. And I think this just this particular year, I've had several friends who have been educators. And that's all they ever talked about growing up was being teachers who have with a heavy heart have had no choice but to leave. And like you said, money was a huge factor of it. And constantly being their hands being told they just want to teach kids. Yeah. They just want, and it's like one of those purest thing I see people wanting to do. And I, like I said, with COVID, I'm hoping parents are recognizing how difficult and challenging it is. And that's all they want to do. And we're making it from, like I said, the lack of support, pay, curriculum changing, testing, retirement, lack of sick days, a lack of substitutes, inner fighting, you know, it's not having a, a voice in, in, in politics and where money is being put. It is just a travesty. It is just one, of, I think, one of the grievous errors of our time is how we treat teachers. And I, it's one we talk about with the water wars. <laughs> it's like, it's already in motion. How do we stop it? I, I, I do not know. Yeah. Before we kind of switch gears, I did want to just do a quick shout out to critical indigenous studies, which is critical race theories, like cousin. So I think they both as as frameworks deal with pushing back on the narrative of like white, white male het cis as the normal experience and instead recognize like a, a wider range of experiences going through life. Um, what I really like about critical indigenous studies, like critical race theory, it's really a an interdisciplinary sort of framework of looking at the world and looking at society. And critical indigenous studies tends to be mm, centering things such as sovereignty and Mm. deconstructing like colonial structures and history and memory and how how that is expressed in different ways also thinking about globalization and a lot of like feminist and queer interventions as well so Mm. i think they really like work hand in hand and critical indigenous studies wasn't something that i was aware of until fairly recently in my life so i would say for people who are like interested in like broadening their scope and learning more about these different frameworks of experiencing the world and being critical of the world that we live in and understanding the world that we live in i would highly recommend like starting on a journey of critical indigenous studies as well. Ooh, thank you. That was actually really helpful. I think that for me, I was actually thinking about, so what next? Mm-hmm. If you've already been in, in, in dipped a toe into this world. And I think that is a great way to also, once again, have solidarity and have a way of thinking that's in total, you know, it's yeah. a holistic way of thinking. And I think that's where we should be moving towards education is a holistic understanding of what's happening. And so, oh, I love it. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. And we, we take things like um, 
the nation state framework as like a given, like as this is the way things are, or like land ownership is a given. Mm. And I think by exploring it through a different lens, it can really open your mind to a possibility of something that I truly, truly believe as far as like the future and making the world better is it will be impossible to get there if we just like kind of follow the path that we're on and be like forward thinking thinking about like how things could go in the future based off of where we are at this moment and Mm -hmm. i think if we explore these frameworks in the past and these different perspectives it opens our mind and then we're able to imagine a more ideal future and then use backwards thinking to kind of like build backwards to our present moment and thinking about how we could get to where we want to be, if that makes sense. Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, we, we also talk about like not being able to repeat past mistakes, seeing yeah. patterns. But I mean, we've seen that in anthropology. We've seen that in mathematician. We've seen that, you know, in these basic studies of that is reflecting on a totality look, a real honest look, and we're learning more and more about the history and its realism, who invented what, who was influenced, and why. And the more we uncover, the more we have to go back, because I think people think, well, we've already gone over that. Uh, 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 uh." We keep discovering more because we've spent time in the past and unveiling real truths. And when we unveil more truths, we have to go back and readjust how that is reflected in today. Like, that's the work. Just like presence is ongoing, the past is always in the making as well. And we have to kind of recognize that as long as we have these systems of oppression, we're constantly going to be unveiling layers and peeling that away. So the past, I sometimes feel, is actually ongoing as well. And we have to acknowledge that to make a real sustainable future. Yeah, I think this like very linear cause and effect thinking is like a white supremacist value. We've <laughs> talked about this before. And I think by opening ourselves up to 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 accepting like a more cyclical way of thinking or knowing that things don't have to continue the way that they're going. Like there are ways to meld things to be better rather than just like continuing to slide down this dystopian slide. <laughs> I just saw like a strip of pole like in a in a in a dumpster that's on fire. You just gotta just slowly slow, just slow descend. Yeah, yeah. It's terrible. It's we gotta awful. we gotta have that strength so that we can yeah. fling ourselves yeah, yeah, back exactly. up. You, know? you gotta flick that leg over, engage exactly. that core. Exactly. <laughs> and that's the mental image I'm leaving everybody with today. <laughs> Oh my god, since we're since we're laughing and we're in a in a decent should we go to our happy place? Yes, let's do it. Tell me all the things, or at least one thing, that is making you happy. <laughs> You're like, Tamika, please tell me just one thing. That's just one thing. thing. Distill it down. <laughs> I think, I believe I've shared on the show before. I, I don't know. We've been doing this for a while now. I used to play roller derby, mm-hmm. and, and I flippin' loved it. Absolutely loved it. Loved it so much that I broke my leg doing it. And I was in a wheelchair for like a year, a cane for another half a year. It was a really nasty break, you guys. It was like, hard. Yeah. yeah, don't don't do it. Just don't. But since then I've actually and this was almost like actually 
And when this comes out, it'll be four years ago that happened. And I recently just got back on my skates. Cool. Yeah. Exciting. Like outdoor okay. skating? Yes. I just, yeah, I, I cleared a little tiny spot in my garage and got some outdoor wheels and, you know, saw my skates, panicked, cried, put them down. <laughs> you know, that had that process of just like, just putting them on and then like not going anywhere and dealing with it. And, you know, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it is hard. Like I can hear like the screams and the bone crack in my head, but it's something I've just really loved with school and life and daughter and trying to work. It's, you know, it's hard. We talk about just to get outside and I have seen it kind of take that toll on my brain and my mental health. And so I love skating. And even if it's just for 15 minutes, I put on my skates and I practice on my little wobbly, <laughs> wobbly little knees, like a fawn just being born. And it just feels just so nice because of something I was, I think I was actually legitimately like a solid B good at. And I, I, I didn't realize how much I missed it. So uh, yeah, it's the journey of learning to skate again. Cool. It's important. Physical, like I say this as someone who feels like I could be perfectly content just being a blob and not doing anything. <laughs> but physical activity is so important for your your mental well-being. I'm so mm -hmm. glad you're doing this. Well, we'll see when like two weeks, I'm like, Danny, I broke something else. <laughs> no, don't even say that. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm being like, I mean, on like con considering what I was doing as to what I just plan on doing is two different worlds <laughs> yeah people are like are you gonna go back to it i'm like i'm good honestly the dream would be to coach or ref like a little girl's roller derby have you <laughs> ever seen like a like elementary school kid it is the cutest so i would love to like ref those games that's that's my admiration <laughs> with skating <laughs> what what is your happy place? Mm, well, I think I'm going to go with, and this is vaguely related to your last happy place, I suppose. I spent a couple hours at the end of last week. I pulled all of my books out and reorganized all my yes. bookshelves in part because I'm like I need to have better access to finding certain books and they're just like floating between bookcases in a couple of different rooms and I was <laughs> like okay now that, that I can't I can't do this <laughs> so I pulled them all out and dusted everything and yeah it was just very exciting to see all the books and all the things I want to read again or all the things I'd like to reference again. Yeah. I, I, I love, love, love books. And then I'm also like, well, if I get rid of five books, I think I can get more. Books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like I'm like, I don't need these five books, the rest, <laughs> the hundreds of the rest of them. I absolutely need in my life. Girl, that's the, we donated a a booty ton when we and I oh, move yeah. over. When you moved, yeah, because yeah. well, because we get charged if we go overweight, mm. and so it's like what weighs probably not our books. cheap IKEA furniture. Our books, <sighs> books are so expensive. Great, a great moving tip for anyone who is moving. I always pack my books in like my rolly suitcases when I'm moving Ooh. so I don't have to carry boxes of heavy books. I can just roll them. Yeah. <gasps> really? Oh, this, she knows. She ready. <laughs> I, I will have to lay definitely not that I ever want to move again, but yeah. the likelihood is high. <laughs> but that's actually really, really good. They are so daggone heavy. So we've gotten that. So how do you 
categorize your books? How do you organize your books? Oh, by subject. I'm not like a, I might, I, I'll go alphabetical sometimes when it makes sense, but I'm not like a go alphabetical or even worse, like color code by spine. Like I understand it looks pretty, but how is that functional? And I okay, guess so I'm just more functional. Out, <laughs> if you're going to call me out in front of all of our friends, at least do it yeah. in the kitchen. <laughs> Here's my exception. I think for like fiction, sure, color code them and make them beautiful. But for nonfiction, and really it's like 80, 90% of my books are nonfiction that I own. Because when I read fiction, I often just will read it like digitally. Mm. So I don't even have that many fiction uh, physical books anymore. But I'm just like, I can't I can't find my nonfiction that way. Mm. I need to like categorize it by topic. I'm not like Dewey Decimaling here. I mean, Dewey Decimal has its own like racist history. (laughs) Can we make that another topic for the show? We should make that another topic. Monsieur Dewey, I've got beef with you. (laughs) We we can go into it. But yeah, I no, I I mean, I go pretty broad in my topics. Mm. I mean, the majority of my books are theater related, right? So like, it's a little bit more broken down that way. Um, But yeah, Love I need it. I need them by subject so that they're at least in like a manageable chunk so I can find what mm. I need. Love it. Love it. Love it. I'm just one of those weirdos who just remembers what the book looked like. And so for me, I'm like, oh, I know this book is blah, blah, blah color. So it's, it's going to be right there in the red section. But Michael prefers my husband. He prefers by subject. So I am killing him. So, you mm. know, but it's all about compromise. Yeah. <laughs> I think it depends on the amount of books, too, and how yeah. often you use the book, right? Mm. Like, I feel like I there are books I'm about to start needing that I have not read in a while, and I could not tell you who wrote it necessarily or what it looks like, um, but I, I would know it by topic. Mm, that's really, you've joined Book Talk. If you've missed out, categorizing your library, the do's and don'ts. Yeah, I don't know. To each their own. I, I yeah. won't deny that the color coding certainly looks aesthetically much oh, and nicer. It's to- and it, it is just, it's van- it's vanity. It is just simply that. Like I said, we've had to dwindle so many down that I'm just like, I just, at least let me have this pretty But I love, <laughs> I just let me have this. <laughs> but I do, degree, I think, by topic is, because you're like, what kind of mood am I in? Or what do I need? And you can access that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could be in a red spine mood, I suppose. And it may, it's fall. It needs to go with your decor. And when you put it lovely on your coffee table or whatever cool kids do. Yeah. So I love a good organizing party by myself where I reorganize things. I love it. Do you do music while you, are you very focused on the books? Mm, I was listening to a podcast while I was doing it, I think. A book podcast. No! Yes! (laughs) love it absolutely love it oh yeah this is the best love happy places um it was and and i guess i'll just do a quick shout out i guess for it literary disco do you know this podcast it's a right it's writer strong of boy meets world fame um (gasps) who played sean right yeah it's his it's his podcast (laughs) with two of his friends who they all like did their mfas together and so they're all like you know in literature so they're all Mm -hmm. like book snobs and they're fun to listen to oh the fan that is several layers of fandom that i'm having a hard time (laughs) digesting in one go oh love 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 
I also realized I'm just like three degrees of separation away from Ryder Strong. So I got really excited. Yeah, because like there was like a book that they mentioned and they mentioned like being good friends with the author. And then I I was incidentally reading that book at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when I got to the like acknowledgments at the end, he acknowledged somebody who I personally know. Um, (gasps) So I was like, oh, yeah, I know him. So I know like through him, I would know you and through you, I would reach Raider Strong. So (laughs) pretty cool. Goals for 2022. Yeah, got to start uh, (laughs) reaching out. I'm gonna become I'm gonna become best friends with Ryder Strong. You wait and see. Oh. I you know what? It would not surprise me in the least. Like I'm totally smirking right now because I'm like this time next year, and he's just like, and we then we realize he's also a tea fanatic, and now we're just like, uh, so I'm waiting. I'm waiting for it to matter. All right. Well, shall we wrap this up? Oh so- yeah, definitely. I would love to hear everyone's thoughts and feelings about critical race theory. If you have further questions, we're certainly not experts. Um, We never (laughs) claim to be experts of anything, but we would love to continue in in that journey with you. So go ahead and you can send any questions or thoughts or reactions you have to us via email by racialunicorns at gmail.com. You could also reach out to us via social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at biracialunicorns and we're on Twitter at biracialmagic. We want to give a huge shout out to Dolly Pop Art for making our very iconic unicorn uh, photo. Please follow her. Just amazing artist, got great stuff, and I believe she has a store open now. We also want to say thank you to Joseph Scott of Citizens of Tape City. I believe they're having their EP drop sometime this fall. Hope we'll have more information for that, and we'll put that on our Instagram as well. But they are a community, and we're so thankful for them. We also want to thank you all so much for listening to us, supporting us. Uh, this is why we do it. We want to have a community and a back and forth. If you have time, it would be so great if you can review us, give us great stars, happy face, bell hearts and give us some positive feedback that just helps get the information out there to our amazing unicorns and encourages our co-conspirators as well yes what else what else i don't i don't know just i think i think that's all the things yeah let's not be afraid of thinking critically yeah all right y'all we'll be back next week with a minisode and in two weeks with another full length episode Mm -hmm. all right y'all peace (laughs) out